Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. The world we're living in today is markedly different to the one we lived in three years ago. The pandemic and war in Ukraine has accelerated trends that began with Brexit and the election of Donald Trump. The dramatic change will lead to central banks prioritising controlling inflation over growth. Today, the FOMC raised our policy interest rate by 25 basis points. We continue to anticipate that ongoing increases will be appropriate in order to attain a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2% over time. Governments being more fiscally active despite huge debt piles. President Biden interrupted his summer vacation to sign the massive climate, health and tax bill at the White House this afternoon. Yesterday I spoke with uh, both Senator Schumer and Manchin and offered my support for a historic agreement to fight inflation and lower costs for American families. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. A new world order challenging globalization. China poses the most serious long-term challenge to the international order. That's the assessment of the U.S. Secretary of State. Antony Blinken said that as he unveiled the Biden administration's strategy to compete with China's rise as a global superpower. We want not just to sustain the international order that made so much of that progress possible, but to modernize it, to make sure that it represents the interests, the values, the hopes of all nations. But that outcome is not guaranteed because the foundations of the international order are under serious and sustained challenge. China is the only country with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military and technological power to do it. Technological innovation, perhaps the likes of which we've not experienced before. Don't let the doubters fool you. Artificial intelligence is going to change everything and it's happening fast. Within the next few months, if you're not using AI in your work and business, you might be at risk of being left behind. And an accelerating response to climate change. Global demand for fossil fuels is soaring and CO2 at worrying levels. Amidst the gloom, the UK has set out dynamic new pledges on climate ambition, as recommended by the Committee on Climate Change, which advises the government how to get to net zero. My colleagues, economist Azad Zangana and Global Chief Investment Officer Johanna Kirkland join me to discuss the so-called regime shift and what it means for us. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. For the best part of the last two decades, central banks really haven't had to worry about inflation over the last year or so, suddenly it's become the main focus. So how does that change the remit of central banks? Well, actually, they they were worried. They were worried it was too low, that the deflation was the big risks. And so they had to pump huge amounts of liquidity into the, to the global economy. That's now being reversed because of fears that we could end up in a much more severe um, situation. But it means that as we go through this current economic cycle, so beyond the next year or two, interest rates will probably settle at levels that we haven't really seen on a sort of medium-term basis since um, the 1990s. Um, They will settle at a higher level than we've seen in a a long time. 
And Johanna, from an investment point of view, that's surely a good thing that interest rates are slightly higher. In some sense, it's a sign that we're moving away from that sort of very deflationary environment. So I think there is po- there are positives to take away from that. And essentially what Zad is talking about is a return of the rate cycle. So in investment terms, the biggest manifestation of the sort of low inflation world was that rates were effectively at zero for quite a while. And in many cases, we had negative yields. And now we're coming back to an environment where central banks will be raising rates to bring inflation under control, as they're doing now. They'll then have to reverse course as growth weakens. But essentially, we're back to a rate cycle. And, you know, again, that, that creates opportunities for rotation through the cycle to allocate different assets. Um, and also, we'd like to see more divergence because as policy gets more active, both on the monetary side and fiscal side, you'll see more divergence between different regions, which again creates opportunities. And we're seeing it very much this year, you know, very different stages of the cycle for China, let's say, compared to the United States, compared to Europe. So this kind of divergence, again, is a source of opportunity for us. So. Interest rates at a more normal level, in inverted commas, does that make it easier or more difficult for an investor? I will say it never feels easy. (laughs) I mean, in 25 years I've been doing this job, it's never felt easy. Um, But I think having um, a positive risk-free rate is a good starting point. It means that safety is worth something. A bird in the hand is worth something. Mm. That makes sense, just from a basic kind of conceptual basis. I think we have to then think about how we build the portfolio. So, for example, for fixed income, which when yields were very low and in some cases negative, you really own fixed income for its diversification properties. And in a deflationary environment, in fact, the correlations were negative. Now we're going to have to own fixed income for its yield. Now, that is important. You know, if you get enough yield out of fixed income, that's very helpful to the portfolio. It's a great cushion. But the point is we have to recalibrate the kind of yields we need to be paid by fixed income. The good news is we saw substantial... Um, change in the valuations of bonds last year. So there are opportunities there right now. But essentially, we'll be owning them for yield, not for diversification. And as this slight shift in remit for central banks, does that change the relationship between central banks and governments at all? Well, some governments will feel the pressure because, uh, you know, like I said, indebtedness is very high right now. And as interest rates are rising, those interest rate costs are also going up for those governments. So naturally, there will be some friction between those governments and central banks. Um, we're not expecting any of the major central banks to change their remits per se anytime soon. Higher inflation targets would be helpful for them. But you don't really want to do that when you're missing your target to the upside. That that would lead to a, quite a big loss in confidence in, in the um, reputation of those central banks. So that, that shouldn't change in the near term. But there is a lot of pressure for them to get inflation back under control. Okay, let's move on to the, the second pillar. So we're talking about fiscal policy, and I think you were saying it's like to be more active. What does that look like going forward? More redistributive uh, policies. Um, some of the policies that we've seen around the energy crisis, for example, in Europe is, is a very good example where um, it really was down to fiscal policy to step in and provide subsidies for some households to help them cope with the costs um, associated uh, with, with those rises. Um, we'll probably also see higher corporation taxes around the world. And actually, this has been something that's been worked on at an OECD level for quite some time. You know, from my days at the Treasury, I was always reminded when uh, the former chancellors used to tell me, well, look, uh, companies don't vote, so it's easy to tax them. Um, and I, I'm going to we expect more to see more of that uh, going forward. I was about to ask, how does greater uh, fis- or more active fiscal policy marry up with all this indebtedness, but you think it's going to come through with higher taxes for corporates? Yes, and I think that the danger comes from 
um, for countries that have elected more populist governments, because for them, they've been rejecting experts and, and sort of the economic norm that everybody subscribes to for a long time. They've sought to challenge those norms and, and think that actually they can spend their way out of these situations. Um, and as we learned last year in, in the UK, no, that's not possible. Um, now that liquidity is kind of being withdrawn from global markets, especially the bond markets, those bond vigilantes are, are back and, and they are paying attention to those countries that are, that are not quite towing the line as they should do. Uh, yeah, Hannah, as I just mentioned it there, the bond vigilantes, especially what happened in the UK. So how does fiscal activism work in the bond market? What will we likely to see from bond markets? Well, again, I mean, big picture, you know, the challenge we had in the last decade was a dearth of demand in some sense. And we crossed an important line during the pandemic. We got used to a level of fiscal intervention that would have been unthinkable. You know, here in the UK, we were told how many people we could have over for dinner, things like that. <laughs> Once you get used to that level of government intervention, it's hard to get that genie back in the bottle. But ultimately, I think, first of all, I mean, from a macroeconomic perspective, in some senses, it does plug that lack of demand that we're suffering from before. I mean, so in that sense, it helps to stave off deflation. I, I think that is probably a positive. The key thing is people have, governments need to be careful not to overdo it, as, as Ad says the bond market vigilantes are back. And if they see policies which are excessively profligate, they will be punished. Governments will be punished. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that, again, that's um, the effective repricing of capital and a move away from manipulated bond yields. As I said, do, do you think governments, probably certainly in the UK, perhaps around the world, took note of what happened in the UK at the end of last year and given the relationship between the central banks? Because the central bank of England pretty much left it until the last minute to come in and say we're going to do something. Have governments now learned that maybe the central banks aren't going to be there so much in the future? I think the message is is definitely out there, especially for the UK government at least. Um, we'll have to wait and see if the same thing happens in Europe, for example, where actually the European Central Bank quite early on in this cycle decided that they were going to step in and provide extra liquidity for the countries that were going to be vulnerable going through the cycle ahead of time. And for now, it's holding up, it's holding up quite nicely. But um, the, the next sort of country to sort of see such an impact may not be in Europe. It may be in the emerging markets uh, or it might be somewhere else. Um, you know, there are concerns around the US at the moment because we're coming up to the point where the debt ceiling is about to be hit again. So, um, it, you know, I think investors will be very careful um, looking at what governments are doing and what they're saying and the dynamics of uh, their fiscal policy. Because as, as Johanna said in the past, when we had huge amount of demand from around the world, and a lot of it was driven by central banks themselves, it meant that you, you could basically do no wrong as a government. Um, if you spent a little bit too much and were, your deficit was going to be too wide, central bank just stepped in and bought more of your bonds and it didn't really matter uh, at that time. Now now it does. And, and actually now we've got the central bank selling bonds back to the market. So they're making things even worse for the governments. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website, shorters.com forward slash investor download. Okay, so the third pillar of regime shift was the new world order and it challenging globalisation. So uh, we've seen spiralling costs largely attributed to the fallout of the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. Um, how might this affect globalisation? 
Well, I mean, if you think about globalization in, in the way that we sort of used to treat it, which is, you know, companies taking advantage of cheaper places to produce around the world, shifting that production or those services in order to achieve better profitability, then that worked amazingly well from about the 1980s until I would say about 2002, 2003. And at that point, it started to slow down. Essentially, most of the easy things to move out to China or Latin America or Eastern Europe moved. And those cost uh, improvements were, were sort of realized at that time. From that point on, um, those companies started taking on the inflation rate of those emerging markets. And so we sort of lost those gains for a period. But fast forward to today, um, we not only have seen a, um, a bit of a reluctance to shift some productions to certain parts of the world, including China, but also uh, a bit of a backlash against doing business in some parts of the world, um, be it for uh, intellectual property uh, or, or other reasons or security reasons. There is now a, a greater uh, incentive being put in place to try to relocate some of those uh, productions. And then we had the pandemic, which suddenly highlighted how fragile the supply chains are around the world. You don't want all your production in one com country. You, you ideally want to have it spread out in a few different countries. And so now you're seeing um, governments in Europe and in the US demanding, for example, that the big chip makers in the world no longer only produce in South Korea. They want their own manufacturing done in Europe and in the US to reduce those risks. But in doing all of that, it's more expensive. It's not the ideal solution, but once you take into account the risks around your supply chain, that's when it starts to make sense. So there is a push to nearshore or reshore, and there's a bit of a reversal of some of that globalization that's been happening. And Yana, we've heard a lot of companies talk in their press conferences about reshoring. I'm not sure um, practically exactly if that's happening right at this moment in time, but are investors needing to think about that in terms of where they're looking for value? Well, um, yes, I think sort of shifting patterns of production is definitely definitely a theme, partly due to geopolitical tenden, uh, tension, but also because, um, you know, the pandemic sort of exposed the vulnerability of global supply chains. So it's something that's being considered. Um, I think that when we think more broadly about geopolitical tension, I think um, commodities are an interesting allocation. You know, I've discussed this before, but I think if that is a concern for investors, then I think a small allocation to commodities is helpful because essentially what we're talking about is a move away from the sort of global efficiency to more localised production uh, and, you know, potentially more stockpiling of commodities. I, I think that's quite a good hedge against. I think it's a good strategic position. You don't need a big position, but I think a bit of, bit of exposure to commodities or if you can't do commodities, commodity related, related investments. I think it's quite helpful. I mean, one thing I was discussing with a, um, a client this morning is, for example, emerging market bonds have, especially local currency bonds, have exposure to commodities because they're often exporters of commodities. There's ways in which you can get that exposure without having to invest in the underlying asset. Johanna uh, mentioned it there, as I talked about commodities, and China has been wielding its power for a, pretty much a long time in Africa. And there seems to be this race on for rare earth minerals, the type of stuff that's going to be used in you know, electric cars in the future, mm. stuff like that. Um, how much of a threat is that to the West going forward? It, it, it will be a big challenge, especially if we are thinking about decarbonisation, uh, investing more in renewables in general, because these rare earth elements are, are, are vital to be able to produce the capacity in order to move to greener forms of energy. And it, it's becoming pretty clear that as 
decarbonisation um, progresses over the next decade or two decades, the cost of it will only rise because of that lack of supply of these rare earth elements. So actually, there is a bit of a first mover advantage at the moment for those countries willing to invest today and try to get that capacity up and running today. The, the gamble that they have is that some of the costs of the technologies required will probably fall as as we as we go through the next uh, you know decade or so. So there is that sort of little gamble happening. Um, but of course, for some parts of the world, like Europe right now, they don't really have much of a choice because the cost of fossil fuels have rocketed because of the war in Ukraine. Uh, and so those incentives are, are, are there to, to make that jump sooner rather than later. Okay, so we've painted a little bit of a picture of prices rising. Uh, we're now going to look onto the fourth pillar, which is how companies might respond. And you think probably their main weapon is going to be technology. Yeah, I mean, they don't really have much else in terms of a choice. I mean, when they, their primary problem right now is a shortage of workers. Um, in the past, that would have been solved with higher migration, but that has politically become very difficult across most of the developed world uh, in, in recent years. And because populist politics is still very much alive today, I don't think we can see a real return to big waves of migration to solve the population problems. Um, that and over many years... Up until the pandemic, we we saw a rising rate of participation of the elderly worker, people choosing to stay on in the labour force for longer than has been in the past. That appears to have stopped absolutely since the pandemic. I think um, especially older workers are, are feeling a bit more vulnerable around their health and their situation, and they, they've started to pull back from the labour force. So for companies, they don't really have a great deal of choice. Um, if you know globalisation is less attractive, uh, you know, um, moving production overseas, then they need to start thinking about the alternatives. And, and robotics and AI are technologies that have been around for a while now. They are there. Solutions are there. They just need to put the money in to invest to get that uh, put into their production or, or service provision. And Jan, is, is that how you see companies just responding as well, putting more and more into research and development into technology? I mean, I think ultimately we're, we're in a disrupted environment. Uh, and... Um, you know, I heard a, um, a figure yesterday quoted to me by consultants that they'd done a survey and apparently 40% of the CEO, it was a CEO survey, 40% of the CEOs, I think, didn't expect their current business model to survive the decade. Mm. Um, and so really against that backdrop, absolutely, it's about innovation, about technological innovation. Um, and I, I think that's a powerful theme that continues because of some of the challenges we've highlighted. That's extraordinary. A decade. <laughs> that was the figure that was quoted to me yesterday, wow. but I think it gives you an idea of the concerns that traditional businesses see. Yeah. Uh, again, it's a world of disruption. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I just one final question on this topic. I mean, what does that mean? There'll be plenty of workers out there that will be worried about their jobs and they'll also be worried about their wages. So what does that mean for jobs and pay packets? Yeah, I mean, this is not a new theme by, by any means. People have been talking about um, jobs being replaced for, for a very long time. And historically, one of the big pushbacks actually would have come from the labour market and from governments protecting uh, those workers. But in a world where we have now a big shortage of workers, for example, in the US right now, we have 1.8 jobs chasing every unemployed 
persons. There are not enough people left to fill all the jobs, even assuming you can match them perfectly by geography. So in that kind of environment, you will see a population and a government becoming more tolerant of the introduction of these kind of technologies, knowing that, yes, they are replacing jobs, but given the shortage of workers we have, those people will probably be retrained and, and, and redeployed elsewhere. We've seen some of that technology been released over Christmas. Have you had a go at ChatGBT yet? <laughs> well, I, I kind of don't want to depress myself. <laughs> I should probably ask it to write a market outlook for me. But um, but yeah, I mean, again, this is an example of technology that's going to significantly disrupt people's business models. Yeah, I, I It's did. disrupting schools already, right? Yeah. So you're already seeing that. Absolutely. I, I did wonder how far it would go. I mean, could, could, could it, for instance, put together an, inv an investment thesis that's you know, quite easy to understand and quite easy to follow? I don't think no we're comment. there yet. I don't think we're there yet, but we need to be careful. I mean, one of my favourite books, which I always talk about, is book Player Piano by Kurt Vonnegut, which he wrote in the 1950s. And this is exactly the future he described. And the problem is that work is not just about earning money. It's also about giving you a sense of self-worth. Yeah. And I think it's very important that these kinds of technologies are controlled so that actually people still have jobs. Yeah. Um, but but anyway, that's that's maybe for our next regime uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, article as ad. Maybe one for us to think about next uh, time, unless we've been replaced by chat. I was going to say by then. We'll, we'll put it at ten years time. Maybe you'll bring see. it a little bit forward. Probably we won't survive this business model. <laughs> this as ad and I, yeah. Well, let's hope not. But let's see. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and let's move on to the uh, fifth and final pillar. So this is the response to climate change, which uh, quite clearly, from what we've seen over the last few years, is clearly accelerating. So. Um, the devastating effects of climate change are well documented, but with the US back in the Paris Agreement and China setting net zero targets, it seems all the big emitters are on the same page now. Is that correct or are they still quite divergent? As far as I'm aware, there is still quite big divergences right now, um, especially in, in the sort of the language being used and the targets being set. But um, there is momentum, and I think that's where uh, a lot of optimism comes out from uh, those that, that are tracking the progress that, that is being made. Yeah, I mean, China's a huge emitter, yet it's one of the biggest investors in clean technologies. It's quite hard to marry up the two at the moment, but I, I suppose they're in a slightly different position to the rest of the world. They, they've spotted the demand from the rest of the world and they're, they're happy to fill it. Um, <laughs> they're not yet demanding it themselves, but uh, I'm sure eventually they will move to it. I mean, you know, the air quality problems that they've had in China for, for many years has become more of an issue and they have taken steps to uh, to sort of trying to tackle that. So, you know, some of uh, President Xi's response recently has been to move away from um, simple economic targets and think about more kind of holistic targets around the environment, indebtedness and other sort of metrics uh, to look at. So they are starting to take it more seriously. But ultimately, for you know a lot of countries around the world, burning coal and fossil fuels is still the most efficient way to generate energy. And um, unless they can spare the resources to go green, they won't for the moment, at least until the West and richer countries start to compensate them uh, for doing so, which, again, there's progress being made on on trying to get that initiative going. Yeah, and you're referring pretty much to emerging markets, or certainly a lot of those countries yeah. emerging markets. So what does that mean for emerging markets? Well, it should hopefully mean a bit more of a switch to, to greener energies, because ultimately, um, nobody wants them to give up industrial production or manufacturing. Um, and, and this has been one of the 
um, sort of the, the big trend in the last sort of 30 years was a lot of manufacturing was shifted out to the emerging markets as part of the globalization, um, which allowed um, advanced economies in the West to have a sort of cleaner environment. But of course, that, that pollution then moved out uh, east and, and, and to the emerging markets. So they want to make sure that they continue to enjoy their sort of long-term cycle of development. They feel that the West have had their chance to grow and, and industrialize and, and so on. Why shouldn't they have the same? So they're, they're seeking compensation to help them with that. And the West has agreed. It's just a question of sort of levels and, and distribution of those funds over time. So energy transition and climate change, Yana, is clearly something that's in the press. It's absolutely everywhere. Is it something that's in clients' minds when you're coming around to the investment side of things? Absolutely. I mean, as you know, a lot of our clients have committed to net zero targets. Uh, and so, and in general, even beyond having committed to targets, I think there's a realisation that one wants to invest in sustainable growth. And so that's something we're discussing a lot with our clients. I mean, you know, the simplest way of reducing the carbon footprint of your portfolio is to buy carbon offsets. But is that really the answer? Ideally, you want to be providing capital to the solutions. And so that's an area we focus on a lot. Uh, you know, we have our energy transition fund, for example. Ultimately, for those who want to finance um, that, that energy transition is helping them to find investment opportunities to do that. And in that way, they're reducing the carbon footprint, but also crucially generating strong returns for their end investors. So this is something, again, that we discuss extensively with our clients. And if you want to find out more, you can go to schroders.com forward slash regime shift. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders Podcast at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. 